Well, my friends, I'm very grateful for the invitation to preach uh, this morning and this evening. I'd be glad if you would turn with me, please, to the book of Lamentations, chapter 4, just after the prophet Jeremiah uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, this is the fourth of five very sad poems uh, occasioned by the destruction, the cruel and horrible destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians nearly 600 years before Jesus. And we come now to the fourth of these, which I'm going to read. So let's hear God's word. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they're regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. Happier with the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we couldn't walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. 
of whom we said under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass, you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. I wonder if you have known what it is to be horrified. I don't mean the sort of rather light way in which we often say, I sometimes say I'm horrified by what a bad traffic jam was or something trivial. I don't mean that. And I don't mean being horrified by um, watching a horror movie. I don't. I think it's, it, there's something very unhealthy about horror as entertainment. What I mean is seeing something or experiencing something which makes your body shake and threatens to unhinge your mind. I was, I've been corresponding with a friend of mine in Santiago who's recently had an experience of absolute horror. He was trying bravely to persuade someone not to take their own life by jumping off a high building. And then to his horror, he watched her jump. And he said to me, uh, we've been corresponding since, he said that when he closed his eyes after that, that awful image would come into his mind. It was what I suppose today we call post-traumatic stress. That's what I mean by horror, something like that, which makes your body shake and threatens to unhinge your mind. And the poem we're going to consider certainly sets before us horror. But it does so, and I've entitled it From Horror to Hope. It does so because it's necessary for us to feel the horror that these poems set before us. If we are properly to appreciate the only hope that there is for a broken world. Uh, chapters 1, 2 and 3 are roughly speaking the same length. Uh, that, that There are three sort of double lines for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 4 is also one letter of the Hebrew alphabet for each of its 22 verses, but they're a bit shorter. It's only two sort of double lines in our, in our Bibles. And I don't know quite what it is, but it feels weary. It feels that there's, there's something of the, the tiredness of grief. There's no prayer, actually, in chapter 4. There's nothing directly addressed to God. And it feels like something of the, the grief is still raw, as we shall hear, but it feels that there's a tiredness and a, a numbness in, in the grief when you get to chapter 4. I'm going to start with the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 11. It's very difficult to know how these poems divide up, and maybe they don't particularly divide up, but I think we can take verses 1 to 11, the first half, uh, to, to start with. And I want us to feel the horror of God's wrath against sinners. The back story to verses 1 to 11 is the siege of Jerusalem before its fall. Later on, you might like, uh, perhaps after lunch, to look at just a few pages back, Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 3 through 11, which describes in prose what happened 
and describes how King Zedekiah, the king of Judah, rebelled against the superpower, the the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and how King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came with his army to besiege the city. And if you look at the dates, you'll see that the siege lasted 18 months. So imagine if no food had been delivered to Cambridge since May 2022. That's it, just to, to begin to get a feel for that. 18 months of siege, surrounded, cut off from the fields and the trees uh, where they could get um, get food. And the Jeremiah chapter 52 and the accounts also at the end of two kings describe it in prose. So Jeremiah 52 verse 6 says, uh, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people in the land. And it just sounds like a, a little, you know, you're reading through it, you scale, there's no food. Oh, well, there we are. But you read the poem here, the first 10 verses, and you begin to feel what it was like to be in the city when there was no food. So as we walk through verses 1 to 10, I make no apologies because the scriptures set this in front of us to to help us in poetry to feel this, to feel something of the horror as um, we are, are, as it were, in Jerusalem with uh, Jeremiah or whoever the poet was at this time. How the gold has grown dim. And of course, the irony is that gold doesn't grow dim. How the unthinkable has happened. The gold with which the beautiful temple of Solomon was um, uh, uh, clad, how it's grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones, probably again of the temple, lie scattered. Literally, they're poured out at the head of every street. So this solid, wonderful, robust structure, now that the stones are just sort of poured out, the same word is going to be used in, in verse 11 at the head of every street. It's just a ruin, but it's not, the focus is not just on the ruin of the, the, the temple and the city, but on the people, verse 2, the precious sons of Zion. That's not just the children, that's all those who are part of Zion's city, part of God's covenant people, worth their weight in fine gold because they're chosen by God and all the promises of the covenant rest on them. And now they're just regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. They're, they're fragile, they're cheap, they're easily breakable. We might say they're, they're like a disposable co- coffee cup, just easily squashed underfoot. That's what they are like. They were so valuable and now they're treated like this. And life is cheap in a famine. And especially for the most vulnerable, verses 3 and uh, after that, even jackals, those wild creatures that roam in the ruins, howling with their horrible, ugly howls. Even jackals, the mother jackal will offer her breast to her young to nurse them and give them food. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostrich, proverbial for its lack of care for its young in the wilderness. So you see these these babies and even jackal cubs or whatever baby jackals are called, even they get food from their wild mothers, but now not in Jerusalem. And the tongue, verse 4, of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Can't even cry. It's so dry and so thirsty 
and so shriveled up. And the children, that is those who've been weaned slightly older, they beg for food, but no one gives it to them. And verse 5, I think, probably still refers to the children. They, 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 they once they feasted on delicacies. They used to have treats, perhaps as we might give our children treats, perhaps especially on a Sunday. Um, our daughter was reminding us that we used to give them um, an egg cup of um, sweets on a Sunday. Isn't that marvellous? I commend that to you, an egg cup of sweets, not more. Um, but they, they, here's the tragedy. They, they feasted on delicacies, but now they perish in the streets. And there's, there's little more poignant, is there, than, 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 than babies and children starving or malnourished. And there they are. They were brought up perhaps in purple, in designer clothes. And now they're on the ash heaps, the landfill sites, the rubbish dumps, as Job was in his suffering. Perhaps they're scavenging there. It's a terrible, terrible sight. And verse 6, starvation is even worse than violent death. It's extraordinary. The chastisement, the punishment, or the iniquity, literally, of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment or literally the sin of Sodom. And if you read Genesis chapter 19 later, you'll see that Sodom was a place um, infamous for its greed and perversion and violence. It was a horrible place. It was sort of like parts of Darfur. Today it was a dreadful place of wickedness. And now the punishment of the daughter of my people, says Jeremiah, has been greater than theirs. Uh, that the sin is greater because it's a sin against the light. They knew in the covenant, they, they had the law of Moses, they knew God's standards, and knowing that, they trashed them. And the punishment is greater because Sodom was overthrown in a moment. You read the, 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 the account of the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 19, it's terrible. It's unutterably terrible. But at least it happened in a day, says Jeremiah, at least it happened just in a day, but this is worse than that because it just goes on and on and on. And verse 7, the princes, the leaders, the preeminent, the celebrities, the kinds of people you'd see on the front of magazines, news magazines and glamour magazines, they were, they were brighter than snow, whiter than milk, they shone. You didn't need to use Photoshop on them. They looked so beautiful and so handsome. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, the beauty of their form like sapphire. They were pictures of blooming health and life. But now their face is blacker than soot. This is not the beautiful dark skin of an Ethiopian. This is fair or middling fair, Middle Eastern skin now darkened by hunger as it ought not to be unrecognizable in the streets and their skin shriveled on their bones. They're just skin and bones and as dry as wood. And so you, you, you see walking around the city these people who were once so great, so glamorous, so handsome, so fine and so strong and now you see them walking around the city all shriveled up and dirty and dark and miserable with their heads down. And so, verse 9, happier were the victims of the sword. It's not often you say of victims of violent death that they're happy. But, but, but Jeremiah says, you know, it's better off to be stabbed with a sword or a dagger and, or a knife and just killed just like that. That's better than to be the victim of hunger, wasting away slowly, pierced 
by lack of the fruits of the field. It's a terrible thing. This is, this is a horror which is long and slow. Imagine those 18 months started off perhaps in a time of hope, thinking it'll be all right, and then gradually getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. It's a dreadful picture. And then in verse 10, the climactic horror, the hands of compassionate women, women who'd been kind and caring, have boiled their own children, and they became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Well, you may say, it is horrifying, but there have been horrifying things all through human history. Every siege has been horrifying. I was reading a book about the siege of Constantinople in 1543. That was a, a horror, sorry, 14, 1543. That was a horrible time. Every siege is horrible. I was reading a, a book about some explorers in the mid-19th century trying to find the Northwest Passage. And in 1854, the discovery was made that in the last extremities of their hunger, they had resorted to cannibalism. And it caused a scandal all around the civilized world. It's not the only time this has happened. I was reading this week um, uh, in The Economist about Sudan at the moment where 40% of pregnant or breastfeeding women are close to starvation. So you say, well, this is a description of horror, and I recognize it because we live in a world of horror. But what is special about this? Now hear verse 11. The Lord, the first use um, of that covenant name printed in capital letters in our English Bibles, the Lord, gave full vent to his wrath. Literally, he completed his wrath. He poured out, it's the same word as the... The stones being scattered in verse 1. He scattered his hot anger. He poured out his hot anger. And he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. I don't know if you've been to a ruin. We visited a ruin in the Cluidian Hills in Wales um, with, with some of our family. And it had been burnt but there was still plenty standing and you could see it. But this is a, a fire that has burnt to the foundations right down, destroyed. It's a total destruction. And God has warned of this in the covenant. If you read later in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the covenant curses. It's a long chapter and most of it is what's going to happen if you turn away from God. And uh, it, it includes this warning that you will be driven to cannibalism in the extremity of your misery. Now, the words gave full vent to or completed his wrath may just be a glimmer of hope, and we'll come back to that. But let me just pause there a moment. We'll come to the hope later. If you feel horror, and I hope you do, I hope the poetry has begun to help each of us to feel something of the horror of what's, what, what was happening there in the siege, Verse 11 says to us, we need to understand that this is what the New Testament calls the wages of sin. That's why it's happening. It's not just that horrible people have done horrible things. This is the wages of sin. It's not arbitrary. It's really important, this, because some people would, 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 would and some of our friends perhaps, would hear this. And they would say, well, this, this just confirms all I've always thought, that the God of the Bible 
or perhaps they'll say the God of the Old Testament is a horrible God. He just says, if you, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to find ways to clobber you and I'm going to make it as horrible as I possibly can. It's not that at all. The logic is this. God is the creator of all things and therefore all good, all good comes from God. And therefore, if I am cut off from God, for the image of a siege, just as in a siege you are cut off from the fields and the trees and the source of food, if you are cut off from God, you will necessarily starve. You will necessarily experience something which this siege helps us to feel and to understand. There's nothing arbitrary about this. And and sin says to us, uh, if you uh, indulge this greed or this idolatry or this blasphemy or this disobedience to authority or this lust or this malice or this untruth, if you do this, there are rich rewards to be had. That's what sin says. And this poem says to us, this is where it leads. And you and I, this, that's why we said earlier in the, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that The fall brought humankind into a state of sin and misery. We're justly liable to all miseries in this life. And if there's anything that's miserable, it's this siege. And you and I think, and it's really important that we we get hold of this, you and I think that a little sin doesn't matter. A little greedy thinking, it won't do any harm. A little fantasizing about how I'll give myself pleasure. A little lustful thought. A little resentment turned over in my mind. A little unforgiveness. Just a little twisting of the truth. It doesn't matter very much. And Lamentation says it matters hugely. This is where it leads. This is the end of the road. This This is the end of this path. And as you and I feel the horror of famine in a siege, we need to feel the horror of God's wrath against sinners. And I've dwelt on this because half the poem is this, and it, 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 it's important that we feel this. The horror continues in verses 12 to 20, which I'll take next, but there's a slightly new angle on it. The, the, the first one, it's not just any old siege, it's the, the sons of Zion at the beginning and end of it. It's the daughter of my people, it's the covenant people. And this focus on the covenant people continues in verses 12 to 20, which you, you might want to call it something like, feel the horror of a false and Christless church. So there's a false assurance amongst them in verse 12, uh, they, they, they said the kings of the earth didn't believe, nor any of the, nobody thought that the enemy could get come into Jerusalem. And of course, some of the Psalms say this, Psalm 46, Psalm 48 especially, Psalm 125, celebrate Jerusalem is impregnable, it's a safe place. And they thought that applied to the Old Testament physical city of Jerusalem with all its sinfulness. And so in Jeremiah's ministry, He had to preach in the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7. He said, you're you're saying, oh, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're quite safe here. Nothing can touch us here. And Jeremiah said, you've turned it into a den of robbers, in words that were echoed centuries later by the Lord Jesus. And you think if it's a den of robbers, you're safe and you're wrong. It's a false assurance. And it's a terrible thing when... The Christian church today offers false assurance. I don't know if, like me, you've been to a funeral where the deceased was not, so far as we know, a believer when he or she died. 
And the minister blithely assures everyone that they're fine, they're looking down from heaven, they're as happy as can be. If you've ever been to a funeral like that, it's a terrible thing when a supposedly Christian church offers a false assurance of safety. And then abusive leaders, verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets who were supposed to speak the word of God and the iniquities of her priests who were meant to teach the law and offer sacrifices to bring the people into the presence of God, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous, those who were righteous by faith. And it's an awful thing when the people of God are led by leaders who are false and abusive. I think probably literally in this case, the blood of the righteous. But now in verses 14 and 15, uh, they're recognized, they're, they're wandering blind through the streets, they, they've, they've shed blood, they're defiled with blood, and they're, they're like lepers. But whereas the leper is supposed to say, unclean, don't come near me, now other people are crying at them, unclean, don't go near them, don't touch them. And so they've become wanderers like Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And they're wandering everywhere and amongst the nations, they go from country to country and people say, we don't want you here, we don't want you here, we don't want you here. And they've been scattered because they've led God's people wrongly. I don't know about you, I've been deeply disillusioned and saddened by what feels like an avalanche of ministry scandals on both sides of the Atlantic. Different denominations, different places, different things, but all of them so evil. But my friends, perhaps I can say this, we must never gloat. And just because we belong to a church with faithful leaders, and thank God we do, we must never be like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable and say, we thank you, Lord, that we're not like other churches, and you fill in the gaps. And we all feel like that sometimes, don't we? Perhaps this week, particularly the Church of England, as it tears itself apart, and as the archbishops lead the church into false teaching and heresy. But we must never be smug or gloating. We must thank God for our leaders and elders and pray for them and let them know that we're praying for them to be kept faithful. It's a privilege, but we must never take this for granted and pray that God will have mercy on on others. And there are false hopes in verses 17 to 20. Our eyes fail, we're watching for help. We were watching, 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 verse 17. In our watching, we watched, almost certainly looking to Egypt in the south if the danger came from the north. They often, they looked to Egypt thinking maybe they'll come and help us. But they didn't, or not for long. And it's a false hope. So you say by the time you get to chapter, to verse 20 where the king is captured... The Lord's anointed, the Messiah, if you like, with a, with a little m, is captured. As King Zedekiah was captured, you can read about that in Jeremiah. You're thinking, well, you've, you've certainly filled my mind with horror, but where is the hope? In the language of that, talk to the children earlier. I can feel the darkness, but where are the stars? And uh, we had a little possible hint in verse 11 the Lord gave full vent to his wrath he completed his wrath and it's a word that's also used in a different sense in chapter 3 the Lord's mercies never come to an end it's the same word 
The Lord never gives full vent to his mercies. They never come to an end. But there's just this suggestion that maybe his wrath has come to an end. Maybe it's been completed. And then in the last two verses, you get this fascinating little um, puzzling pair of verses. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. And rejoice and be glad is in the sense of, oh, you can laugh now. There's a sort of irony there. Edom, if you've been a Bible reader for some time, you'll know that Edom uh, was very closely related to the people of, of God in the Old Covenant. Geographically, they weren't far away to the south and the east. Uh, ethnically, they were sort of cousins, descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, from whom the children of Israel gained their um, name. And here's the thing. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites cheered them on. And you get this again and again in the prophets. The little prophet Obadiah will tell you about that. And there are bits of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Psalm 137. The Edomites cheered them on. And so Jeremiah says, you can be, you can be glad now. You can cheer on the attackers, but the cup of God's judgment will come to you and you're going to suffer all the agonies. But, verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. It's finished. It's completed. The exile's going to come to an end. But for Edom, it's not. Now, here's the puzzle. What does Jeremiah mean by saying that the exile is a complete and adequate punishment for their sin? It's a little bit similar to asking the question in the Old Testament, can an animal sacrifice really pay for sin? And the answer in both cases is no, but it's pointing forward to a greater day. You get the same puzzle in Isaiah 40. Comfort my people, cries Isaiah. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double, a full payment for all her sins. And you ask, how can this be? And the answer is, it's pointing forward to something greater. One day, a true Israel will endure all the famine agonies of this poem. And the slow miseries of hell will be his. One day, the true Israel will be violated and trashed and ravaged. One day, the true temple will be destroyed. Destroy this temple, says Jesus in John chapter 2, speaking of his own body. One day the true prophet will pay the penalty of a false prophet. One day the true priest will be defiled as a false priest. He'll wander with nowhere to lay his head. One day the true king will be captured in the pit of death and the tomb. And one day the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, will point, as in our New Testament reading, to a man in the crowd and he'll say, look, 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 this is the one who's going to bear sin and take away the sin of the world. And at last, when he does this, the words gave full vent to, and the words punishment accomplished will be heard as he cries out, it is finished, it's finished, it's done, it's paid. And then the exile can come to an end and exiles can be welcomed home. And you and I need to feel the horror of a Christless 
church and the horror of our own sins, as we feel that horror, then we begin to grasp the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. And we begin to understand that we can go through this broken world with all its horrors, with hope that the punishment has been paid and that if we belong to Jesus Christ, one day every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. I don't know about you, but when I first came to faith in Christ when I was 17, I don't think I really felt the horror of sin. I knew that, I knew that I'd done wrong things. I was glad to be forgiven. And in God's kindness, I believe it was genuine. But it's since then that I've gradually felt more and more at different times of my life the horror of my own sin and the awfulness and the ugliness of my own sin. And the more deeply I have felt that, and may God continue to enable me more deeply to feel that, the more I've felt the wonder of what Jesus has done for me. And if you're here this morning and you're not as yet a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't as yet feel anything of the seriousness of what goes on in your own heart, then you can have arguments and discussions with Christian friends, but you're never really going to be interested. But if you begin to feel and your conscience begins to show you, as it has done in every Christian, something of the ugliness of your own heart, then you'll begin to, to say, I really need a saviour. And when John the Baptist says, look, this is the man who takes away sins, then I'll begin to think, yes, I need him. And yet, even as I remember a friend telling me, he's in glory now, but that when he first came to Christ, it was as though the pains of hell had got hold of him. He was so deeply convicted by his sin. And yet, even so, it will only be at the end that we really grasp how much we owe, which is why I've chosen for our final hymn, uh, a lovely hymn of Robert Murray McShane, in which he says at the end of each verse, only at the end, then I'll fully know, not till then, how much I owe.